Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Today, our hosts, Julie Beam, ATN's Executive Director, and Ginger Healy, ATN's Parenting Program Director, are taking a deep dive into understanding shame. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Ginger Healy. And I'm Julie Beam. And it's a shame we haven't talked about this before. Then we haven't talked about what before? About how toxic shame can be. Like seriously, we ought to be ashamed that we've waited this long in our podcast to cover something so crucial to understand so that we don't inadvertently add to children's adversities. Okay, so I know you're being a little tongue in cheek with us on this one, Ginger. You don't really believe that we should be ashamed for not talking about shame. Yeah, of course I am. And that's kind of the point. We all know what shame is because we felt it. And we all know how much we don't want to feel it. Yet we can all probably think of a time when we've used shame to keep ourselves or others in line. I really hope as we talk today that we can come to an agreement that shame can be a dangerous weapon to wield against children and against ourselves. So when I think of shame, I think of the most renowned shame researcher and perhaps the most famous social worker in the country, Brene Brown. Brene is an expert in shame and bases her work on the importance of studying shame and its relationship to vulnerability and resilience. She's very clear on what shame is as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Right. One of the things that I really love about Brene's work on shame is that she's also clear on what shame is not. That truly helps us to start having a language to talk clearly about shame, and it makes it easier for us to figure all of this out. For example, shame and guilt are not the same things. Yeah, it's an important clarification. Guilt says I did something bad, while shame says I am bad. But it's also good to define two other terms, humiliation and embarrassment. Humiliation is best explained as shame that you feel you don't deserve. So generally, you don't internalize that that I am bad thought. Instead, you turn the negative thought back towards the person or situation that humiliated you. Right. And I'm not sure in Renee's work where exactly this story is. It could be in her Daring Greatly book or her Rising Strong book, but she gives a great example about a young girl um, at school who frequently forgets to write her name on the top of her paper. So one day the teacher tells the whole class, class, I have one paper left to pass out and it doesn't have a name on it. Can any one of you guess whose paper it is? And of course they all, you know, they all giggle and respond that it's this girl's paper and she's the only student who's not gotten a paper back yet. And they all chime in and call out her name. And, you know, that's a hugely shaming or humiliating thing to have happen, right? The teacher then proceeds, like layers it on top here and says, take this paper, says this to the girl, and write your name across the top of it right now. And your name is spelled S-T-U-P-I-D. Whoa, 
That's mm-hmm. heavy, right? So Brene explains that if this girl is shame prone, in other words, if she has an internal view of herself that is negative, then she's going to feel that shame, the weight of the I am unworthy of love bit, right? And it's going to continue to reinforce a belief that she probably already has that she's stupid. So that's what shame is like. But if she does not have that negative view, and if she's got plenty of healthy resilience built around her, she might feel that experience as humiliation, which is negative, but it also is externally focused. So she's going to think something like, boy, that teacher sure is mean and awful. And I hate being in her class, right? So that's a whole different feeling. So Brene explains that actually that the humiliation and the anger and righteousness, if you will, that you feel when you're being humiliated is a healthier emotional response than the shame that, that makes you feel like you deserved that because you are bad or stupid or less worthy. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in that story, but it does help us to understand the difference between shame and humiliation Embarrassment is much milder. It's a feeling of discomfort that often doesn't last very long. And so what differentiates embarrassment from shame is that when we do something embarrassing, we know we're not the only ones who have done that thing. Shame makes us feel completely alone. When we do something embarrassing, it can be funny, you know, shortly, especially after the moment's passed. And that's why we're often very willing to share embarrassing things we do, especially with our friends and those close to us. And when people laugh at embarrassing things, it's like a laughter of shared experience because we can usually relate. Right, exactly. And when people laugh at shameful things or humiliating things, then we feel those big negative emotions, but we can usually laugh. I just really think it's important that each one of us, when we're learning about shame, that we keep in mind the difference between shame and guilt and humiliation and embarrassment. You probably already know this, Ginger, because you know this is your, your field of study career-wise, but I had to go back and research about when shame shows up as an emotion in a developing child. I had heard a child development expert talk about shame being the primary negative emotion in a development stage. And so when I went back and looked, it's the stage two of Erickson's child development model, or when an infant is becoming a toddler. This is the stage when the young child is starting to discover the world and assert their own autonomy, when they're starting to realize they are separate from their their mom, from their primary caregiver. And it's also when negative responses to their growing independence can take a very hard toll on their view of themselves. Just like in infancy, where the fear and mistrust are the emotions that can build up when their needs aren't met from an attachment cycle, an exploring toddler who is harshly punished, verbally abused, or even neglected while they're in this exploratory stage can start to internalize a great deal of shame. That's just what happens developmentally if they don't get the right kind of interaction from the adults in the world. 
I had a therapist tell me once that if a person overreacted to shame more than fear, that it was a developmental clue of when the timing of their childhood adversity was. And I can tell you that from my own childhood, that shame is my kryptonite more than fear, that uh, it, it was, it equates to how old I was developmentally when there were extra challenges in my family. So I am what researchers would call more shame prone. So I have to be very, very careful to identify this in myself, especially if people are criticizing something of, of mine um, or even critiquing it. I have to be ready to know that that's going to happen even though they mean it to be highly constructive, it's hard for me not to read it in a shame way. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I've seen that in myself and in other people too, that sometimes it's harder to take comments if we're automatically, you know, feeling them as criticism and feeling unworthy of whatever is about to come out of that, their mouth. And I think sometimes when we are learning about trauma overall and we're we're parents who are parenting children from hard places or we're teachers learning what it means to be trauma-informed we blow right past the shame piece because we're because we think that the emotion that children is are feeling is primarily fear right fear and anxiety and that's why i think this this whole talk that we're going to do on shame is super important is because Shame can drive us to a lot of behaviors that we might not relate to shame is really one of the key points, right? Yeah, there really is uh, negative impacts of shame. Those who research shame have found a significant link between shame prone and a risk for psychological problems. In fact, a research study in Canada on adolescents ages 11 to 16 showed that those who were more shame prone we're more likely to struggle with depression, anxiety, or both. And this is because of the way we process and believe the messages that shame gives us. Messages like, I'm defective, I'm a failure, I don't deserve to be happy or successful. And something else I think we need to talk about is that shame also has a link to addiction. It's often at the root of the negative, painful feelings that using the addictive substance is meant to numb. According to internal family systems, that's a therapeutic framework that's very attachment and relationship based. Substance abuse is really the mind's way of trying to protect itself from intensely painful emotions that might otherwise lead to suicide. But this becomes a self-defeating cycle when the substance abuse becomes viewed as a shameful behavior, which it very often does. Right. That's super powerful. And I wonder, being a student of Gabor Mate about the trauma is addiction, you know, how the shame fits into that. That's something we probably ought to look into sometimes when we're talking about his work, or maybe someday get to talk to him directly about his work. That would be exciting. So here's what I find kind of maddening about shame is that once I learned about it, what it was, what the challenges are around it, it was sort of like trauma. I started realizing how toxic it was and I started to see it happening everywhere. I started to see where I was using shame 
you know, blaming that became shameful as a tool and where other people were using it too. And it's fascinating to me that Brene Brown now calls shame a trauma. She just outright says it's a trauma and that there's been a term coined that is toxic shame and, and it's showing up more and more in research. But the practice of using shame to control others' behaviors is still very commonplace or to control our own behaviors. It's something I have to break myself of that shame talk in myself in my head, I have to get outside of that, that talk. Using shame as discipline and to control behaviors actually does work on the surface because nobody wants to feel that emotion, right? So we do it to ourselves, we do it to our children, but it's definitely at a cost, right? It's definitely, definitely a cost of the relationship with our kids and of planting that seed of their unworthiness. I mean, if you realize that when you shame people, like the example of the teacher, you know, actually, I mean, she went so far as to call the girl stupid, right? right? That example is so harmful. And as I was telling that story, most of you probably cringed, right? Because you're just, you're feeling for that little girl. And, you know, what did she learn? She probably learned I am stupid. And it just reinforced that thought if it was already there. It was probably not the teacher's goal at all to teach that child that she was stupid. All the teacher wanted to do is for her to put her name on the paper, I think, you know, so it's like, wow, the cost is a loss of being vulnerable and willing to trust. I mean, you just really shut down in the presence of somebody who shames you, right? There really isn't a relationship that's healthy at that point. So if it's a parent or a caregiver or somebody really close to you that you see every day, it's really hard to have a safe, trusting relationship with that person if you feel ashamed around them, right? I've just been sitting here thinking of how often parents sometimes kind of flippantly use name calling as, I don't know, a tool or a strategy or just a way of life. And I often hear them say, oh, it's no big deal, or it doesn't bother them, or it's just a joke. It's just a joke. And then when I hear siblings kind of repeat that amongst themselves, you know, after they've heard it from, you know, wherever, because sometimes that sibling relationship gets a little less formal, obviously, mm-hmm. or in inside jokes become kind of a, a way of life. But We don't stop to consider how deeply those wounds can really, really be. And especially if you're saying, oh, it's just a joke, what a cop out that is and what a way of trying to get out of the deeper concern that really lies behind that and the layer of shame that kind of builds upon that. Right, right. And it's and it's tricky. I mean, because families for years have had the slow poke and the mess maker and that, you know, like all of those names, you know, and you may have been that child in your family and you may now as an adult go, well, that didn't really bother me, but you may say it did really bother me. It hurt my feelings that I, that I was called the slow poke. And maybe it was because I got distracted easy, or maybe it was because I didn't know how to tie my shoes. And so I couldn't get out the door fast enough or whatever it was. And, you know, so the wounding can happen and we just have to be careful about what we decide to make family jokes and levity about in all of that, I think. Yeah. And just to be aware that 
a little dig, Mm -hmm. you know, can actually be a gaping wound, especially for a child that is shame prone. We all know those kids that are more vulnerable, more tender, and uh, we have to be aware of that and intentional with with our words. Our words really matter. Yep. Exactly. Or at least check back in with them. And I know like if your family called you a slowpoke, and at some point your mom just said, does it bother you that we call you a slowpoke? You know, then that opens the door for reflection. If you've got a, a relationship where you're opening that door for reflection, you'll know whether it's bothering your child or not that you'll be able to sort of sense that. I've just felt and heard recently that in our culture, people are saying, oh, you're too sensitive, Mm. you know, and that you're easily offended and that we have to really be mindful of those words too, and how they can impact a person. I don't want to get political. I'm just saying it matters, you know, Well, and one of the first things that I was taught when I started going to therapy for myself was that feelings are feelings. They just are, and they're neither good or bad. So I can't be too sensitive. If something is sensitive to me, that's just the way it is. I'm just being honest and vulnerable and authentic and telling you that that's what I'm sensitive about, because trust me, we're all sensitive about something, right? (laughs) You know, I hope so. I really don't want it to be looked at as something negative that we are not in touch with our feelings and how they impact ourselves and others, because boy, we could, and we probably already have done a, you know, a whole episode on how it affects our autonomic nervous system, which in return affects our lifespan and our health and our quality of life. It is bigger than just, you know, having your feelings hurt. Everything that's coming out of our podcast, when we talk about all these different concepts, the reason that we're taking the time to break them down into all these different concepts is for you to understand that they do have life altering results to them. That understanding these concepts and practicing a vulnerable relationship filled, regulated life for yourself and for your children is going to make you not only emotionally healthier, but it's going to make you healthier in all aspects that the ACEs work is super clear on that, right? Yeah, this completely, totally speaks of the ACE work. Back to Brene and the whole concept of vulnerability, because I don't want to miss that part of her work. Vulnerability is the willingness to be seen as you are. The trust and courage it takes to be vulnerable. So shame just kills that vulnerability, right? It just shuts things down. So then Brene, in her incredible wisdom, and if you're not familiar with her work, get familiar. She's got books, she's got podcasts, she's got great TED Talks. We'll link some of her things in our show notes for sure. She links things like creativity, innovation, and courage to how vulnerable you are, right? She just flat out states that shame kills vulnerability. And if you're a parent or teacher who uses shame as one of your tools to help control your child or your classroom, You're making it harder for them to be creative and courageous, to trust themselves, to build the relationships. 
it's coming at a cost, at a big cost to what we're setting our kids up for there. Yeah. And yet it's common practice. Brene's research shows that 85% of us can remember something that happened at school that changed the way we thought of ourselves and in return impacted our learning due to that shaming experience. So chances are it's a voice you hear in your head, right? Or relive when you're confronted with a similar situation. It can even be kind of like a flashback. The flip side is that that same research found that 90% can remember a teacher that believed in them. So yes, teachers have the power to really change children's lives. Both teachers and parents can be that determining factor on whether children become shame resilient or not. I will never forget the moment that I heard um, Dr. Melissa Saden speak, and she said that firefighters run into a building that's on fire to put out the fire. Teachers remain in the building and create relationship with that fire, you know, talking about (laughs) how these kids are sometimes that hard and vulnerable and impacted by shame that they need, you know, that hero and that teachers can be that hero and are that hero. And so I can't say enough good about these teachers who truly change and shape these lives. Yeah. And I think that so many of us, even though we probably never directly tell that teacher how they've impacted our lives, so many of us have that story. Even if we weren't highly traumatized or coming from significant hardships, 90% of us had a teacher who believed in us in some way. So what power we have when we're using it in that positive relational way, most teachers are doing it without giving it any thought. So what we're, we're suggesting is that you do give it some thought. If relationship is your superpower, and it likely is, then learn about it, learn about the power of it and what you can do about it. Don't you think, Ginger? Oh, yes, absolutely. So one of the other things that Brene points out about all of this research and when talking about shame, using it as a disciplinary action is that we have to be clear that shame is worse when there's a power differential coming into play. And when you're the parent or the teacher, you hold significant power over the children, even when you don't feel like you do, even when they're in middle school and high school and you think they're not paying any attention to you, you still have a power differential. So if you're wielding shame, it's going to have a bigger impact. It's going to be much more likely to wound the children deeply and you're, they're going to carry it longer because you are the most powerful person in their world. The flip side is true too. The positive impact you make is going to be bigger and last longer, even if they don't acknowledge it then. I told Ginger, I was going to tell you all this, this little story about my dad. I got to tell you that my dad would never have willingly hurt my feelings, purposely hurt my feelings in any way. But he was also a jokester sometimes. So when I was in middle school and girls are super tender in middle school and I was a super tender girl, I had bought a new outfit to wear to a party and I was so excited about this outfit and about the party and I was getting dressed and I was primping and it was a big deal and 
you know, my dad was parked in front of the TV, whatever sports was on that time of year, he was watching it. And I did my little walking into the living room, ta-da kind of moment, right? And he, without even hardly looking away from the the sports, just jokingly said, oh, you're not going to wear that, are you? He knew I'd been primping and all of this stuff, right? And it was so deflating and wounding. I didn't know what my response should be. My thinking brain knew it was a joke, even while he was doing it, but that was not where I felt it, right? I felt this wash of shame and doubt, like all over, like, like maybe I shouldn't be wearing this. Maybe it doesn't look good. And I think I might've even changed clothes. My family definitely knew I was upset about it, but then it kind of became a running family joke, which on the one level I was good with, like, you know, I got that it was a joke. If anybody was wearing anything new or made any reference to, you know, how excited they were about their outfit, then somebody would say, oh, you're not going to wear that. Are you with the same inflection and life went on. And I realized as an adult that. A, I do worry a little bit about what I'm wearing most of the time. Like, how does it look and what are other people thinking? And I sometimes, if people comment on my clothing, especially if they comment not to the extreme positive, it brings up all that talk in my head. And that's just a tiny little sliver of a shame instance that was not done intentionally by my dad. I can dissect it now as an adult but it still happens for me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's still there, right? Yep. You know, there are things that affect us in the long term. even, you know, something benign can really make an impact and it's just really something to sit on and mull over. I think that's kind of what we wanted to do in this first episode of shame, because we're going to do a part two is just really kind of set the stage and and get you thinking about this. Yeah. So we are, as Ginger said, going to unpack shame in the second um, session. And what's coming up in the next episode, we don't want to leave you hanging about an important truth, because if you are listening to what I just said, and what we've been talking about, and you're thinking, oh, man, I have a lot of shame in my background, too. And I struggle with this a great deal. I want to quote Dr. Brene Brown directly, shame needs these three things to survive and grow secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you give your shame, secrecy, silence, and judgment is going to continue to grow. I just told the entire world my story about clothing. So maybe I've shined enough light on that for me that that won't be an issue for me anymore. Shame cannot survive being spoken, being shared, and it definitely can't survive empathy. So once you're no longer alone in your shame, it really can't survive. We're going to spend some time in the next episode talking about empathy and compassion. That's going to be our focus as well as some definite antidotes to shame. So join us next time, will you? This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Join us next time for part two on our understanding of shame, where Ginger and Julie will explore some ideas on how to shame-proof ourselves and our families. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment Trauma Network, visit our website at attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pancras. Thanks for listening.